And we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3 today together. I don't know about you, but uh, growing up I used to kind of mark my life and my days, my years by uh, holidays, you know? Like you just couldn't wait till Christmas got here, you know? And then once Christmas is over, it's kind of a downer for a moment, but then I started looking close to, you know, President's Day. Or then we're in the parts where I grew up, I grew up in Ohio, and uh, we actually used to get snow, okay? Not what we call snow here, all right? Not the fluff on the ground. I mean, this is like deep stuff that would come in. And we look forward, we get up early and like, all right, they're going to announce our school's closed on radio. And so if we get off, it was like just celebration, okay? But, you know, as you go on, the next event or later events that I start looking forward to as a kid growing up was the yearly vacation, a yearly road trip that we would make. And what we usually did in our family was that we, every year almost, we would go to Florida for our vacation. we go around the Tampa Bay area somewhere at St. Petersburg or Sarasota, and we would make that long trip from Cincinnati, Ohio, all the way down to Florida. It was like a 15-hour trip, a 15-hour trip. And it was an exciting time. It was a fun time. We looked forward to it. But it was also a, a time that... Uh, you know, it had its difficulties. I mean, you had to get up early, first of all. Uh, my dad would get up like 2 a.m. in the morning for us to go. 2 a.m.? Or 6 a.m. was the latest. Remember, my mom, she used to always, like, and she would get up and say, you know, Jerry, and we live about 15 minutes from the Ohio River, and she's like, Jerry, I'm going to stay up with you this time. I'm going I'm to stay up with you. I'm going I'm to help you get through these wee earlier hours in the morning. So by the time we hit, hit the Ohio River, my mom was asleep. And we used to just joke about it. We still joke about that with her today. It was a long trip, because as you would make your way through Kentucky, you first of all had to kind of deal with the early morning fog, and that's kind of a treacherous thing. And then as we got into the mountains of Tennessee, and uh, we would start making our way through there, and it, it would be difficult as you weaved your way through that, and you climbed up through those mountains, and you'd always had the, the traffic, you had all the construction areas that Dad had to manage his way through, and then you had the uh, times where you looked through the city traffic, we make it to Atlanta and going through that. And then there was also the kids you had to deal with, all right? I mean, how are kids on a road trip, 15-hour road trip? That's terrible, isn't it? It is. I mean, my, my sister and I, we, we, we tried to do our best, you know, we tried to get along, but, you know, we had our lines. You, hey, don't cross this line. If you crossed the line, that meant something serious, all right? Those are fighting words. So mom and dad had to deal with that. They had to deal with the fact, too, of, uh, you know, uh, this, this, especially when we got to Georgia. I mean, it's a pretty state. they got wonderful pine trees, but that is a stinking long state. Go from the top of Georgia, to, to, and I would never so bored in my life to see another pine tree. And so you're just looking for ways to kind of get, ah, I'm going to bug my sister or something like that. So there's always these things that they were having to manage uh, along the way. I noticed something about Dad, though, is that Dad had thought through and Dad was prepared for the trip. Matter of fact, before we even started the trip, Dad had already secured the reservations in the hotel. Dad had already saved up the amount of money and got his money situated. You know, he always had his cash that he would take with him. Then back in those days, he had his traveler checks that he would also have. You know, he had a different place. He never put them in the same place, all right? And he would do that. He also would take care that the car was ready, all right? So you take the car in, you get the tires right, you get the oil changed, you make sure all the belts and everything are working well, and he would manage those things. And then as he drove, Dad had certain skills that I watched along the way. 
that his dad would drive, he never got up near close to a, a truck. You stayed back from it because he said, hey, man, if you get too close to a truck, it's going to put a rock in your window and you crack your window and he'd like to take care of his car. He would, he would drive safely. He also knew it always like this. He was always thinking, once you, he was used to tell me, once your gas gets under about a quarter of a tank, you got to start looking to where you're going to stop and pull up and fill up your gas. He stopped at the gas station. He would check the car over again, clean the windshields, all those kind of things. He was even think if it got too late, if we we're going to make it a two-day trip, he would start thinking, all right, we got to get off the road before everyone else gets off the road so we can get our place and our hotel to stay in. And that's how Dad did it on our road trips. And he made them safe trips, made them successful trips. You and I are on a road trip. All of us here who are mothers and fathers and have children in our lives or even grandchildren in our lives, we're on a road trip. It's a road trip called this life that we're in. We have a road trip that we have to raise up children, that we want to have healthy marriages. And on these road trips, we want to thrive. We want to have Christian families that can thrive and travel through today's culture. And that requires a certain essentials and certain preparations and maintenance to take along the way. And I want to share you with those today. We're beginning a series called Road Trip. And in this series, we're going to look in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through uh, verse chapter 4, verse 6. And this is going to form the basis of our study over the next month, couple months here. And in the midst of this study, we're going to look at the family. We're going to look at the roles of a husband, the roles of a mother, uh, the roles of a wife, that is. We're going to look at the roles of a husband and a father as well. And we're going to look at the parents and, and parenting. And we're going to look at what the children's roles are in this as well. And our goal behind this is that we want to help you and we want to thrive in our families, especially as we face the cultural challenges that we face today in our society. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 17. And in these verses here, I'm going to lay out some essentials. The first essential is this. One of the things what it says here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, it says this, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In essence, what he's saying here is in whatever you do, whatever you're, you're doing in your personal life, whatever your job is, whatever you're doing as a husband, whatever you're doing as a, a, a wife, whatever you're doing as a father or a mother, or whatever you're doing as a teen, or whatever you're doing as a child, or as, as a, and you're in that phase where you're beginning to become adult, whatever you're doing in that section of your life or season of your life, you're to do it for the glory of God. Matter of fact, the whole book of Colossians leading up to this chapter here is all about the supremacy of Christ, that he is the creator of all things, that he sustains all things, and because he does that, he should have first place in our lives. It talks about his sufficiency, that there's nothing else that needs to be done for our salvation. Salvation alone is found in Jesus Christ. And through salvation in Christ, we have a new identity. And what Colossians is saying, in light of his supremacy, in light of his sufficiency, you need to make him the Lord of your life. You need to do whatever you do for the glory of God, including family and marriage. In fact, let me give you a key truth to get. If you get this truth, it'll make a huge world of difference in your marriage and family. The key truth is this. Marriage is first and foremost not about your happiness. Marriage is not first and foremost about your happiness. Now, some of you don't like that statement. Let me finish it for you. Marriage is first and foremost about the glory of God. 
But get this. When you grasp that principle, when you understand that the glory of God is good, and that when you begin to make the object of your life about the glory of God, guess what happens? It flows over into your life and benefits you. You begin to understand what real joy is. You begin to understand how real happiness is found. That it's in making God the center of your life. It's about the glory of God. So how do we do that? How do we, as we approach family and marriage, how do we make God the center? How do we make Christ His Lordship? Well, I want to give you just six essential practices for developing a Christ-centered marriage. This is just to lay the groundwork to what we're going to go in through the next several weeks. We'll actually come back to these principles as we apply the other truths that we'll look at. The first one is this. It's this, focus on the person and purposes of Christ. Look at verse 1. It says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... What that simply means is that if, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, that if you've put your faith and trust in the personal work of Christ, that is, you have been identified with His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That is, you've been given victory over sin and death, and you have life eternal in Christ. If that is you, then look what the text says. It says this, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. When it speaks of his being at the right hand of God, that that obviously speaks to uh, something literal in the sense that he's there, but it also speaks to something, it's a picture for us also, that to be on the right hand of God speaks of his honor, it speaks of his majesty, and it speaks of his right to rule. Because he is reigning, and he ought to have rulership over our lives. So, So when you look at this, to seek these things above. It says keep seeking. It's the idea of a continuous tense. That we want to keep striving. We want to keep looking to Him. We want to keep our attention and our focus on Him. And this begs the question, well, what are those things above? What are those things that we're seeking? Well, it's not just, He's just not talking about heavenly geography here. I mean, obviously we want to look forward to heaven. We want to have heaven in mind. In fact, I'm reminded of the story of a, uh, a, a lady that I pastored her granddaughter, and uh, she actually used to get up every morning. She was in a, in a nursing home at the time, and she was in her 90s, and she was ready to go. In fact, she used to, she used to pray that she would go to heaven. And when she would wake up in the morning, she would look around and see where she was, and she'd go, ah, I'm not in heaven yet. Now, we want to look forward to that, but when it's speaking of things above here, he's not just talking about heaven's geography. He's talking about thinking or setting our minds on Christ and His purposes and His plans. The, the, the second command adds to this. Look what it says here. Set your minds on the thing above, not on the things that are on earth. To set your mind is something to keep thinking about it, to have your mind on that. In essence, what he's saying here is, he says, what we want you to do is if you want to live and thrive as a family for Christ is that you've got to take heaven's thinking or Christ's thinking and you've got to bring it to bear here on earth. So instead of whatever else is your focus in life, what needs to be your focus and where your mindset needs to be is how Christ thinks and His rule and His reign in your life. I have the joy, one of the things I do is since I can't play basketball very well anymore, I like to coach basketball. It kind of helps me get my competitive edge out there. I still need my wife sometimes to give me those signals like, dude, you're, you're getting out of hand, okay? Anyone else need to have that done? Okay, I do. I'm alone in that. But uh, 
But one of the things I try to teach the kids is I try to teach them, well, how do you, how do you shoot good shots? And so I, I, I tell them, we have to shoot beefy shots. They're like, what's beefy shots? Well, some of you know what beefy shots are, but let me tell you what a beefy shot is. A beefy shot is this. You got, first of all, you got to be balanced, okay? Then you got to have your elbows, you know, you, you got to have a cocked elbow ready to shoot. Then you got to have eyes. You got to have your eyes on the rim. And then you got to, you got to follow through. And then I want them to have confidence. So I say, when you shoot it, you say, yes. Be confident you're going to make that shot. Now, here's what happens sometimes, though. We're out there practicing. We're out there shooting around, and, and they're banging them off the top of the backboard or the bottom of the backboard, or they're just shooting air balls, and I just got to stop, and I say, all right, what are you looking at? And they say, well, we're looking at the, the basket, the backboard. And I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not how you make shots. You don't make shots banging off, off the top of the backboard. You don't look at the whole thing. Remember eyes? The eyes got to be focused on either the front of the rim or the back of the rim. If you want to shoot good shots, you got to focus there. I'm telling you this, the reason we don't shoot good shots in our spiritual walk sometimes is because our eyes are not focused on the purpose and person of Christ. We need to shoot some beefy shots in our Christian walk. We got to be focused Christ, his way of doing things. So we focus on his person and his purposes. One of the ways that I do this is I pray. I pray. We have an example up here. One of the things that I pray, and I would exhort you that maybe you would pray this. Matter of fact, I have this written in one of the bulletins in the back. You can get on the way out. So I would encourage you to start your day. Just pray something like, oh, Lord, guard my heart against the temptations of the world and renew my heart and spirit. Empower me to seek Christ's kingdom and your righteousness. I mean, this, this ought to be placed at the edge of your bed when you get out or on your, on your mirror. Start your day off like that. I was sitting down with lunch one time with a fellow, and he was telling me how he wanted his son to be involved in church and to be you know, benefiting and, and knowing Christ. And as I listened to him, I knew where he was at in his life. And basically what I said to him, I said, look, that is great. But if you want your son to follow Christ, you have to be following Christ. You need to follow him. The focus of your life needs to be Christ. The focus of your life needs to be the person and purposes of Christ. That's how you thrive in family life. Second thing is this, though. Look what the text says. Second thing is this, look at the text says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That, that is full, that is full of meaning there. That is, we have security because our, our life spiritually is hidden in Christ. And it says this, when Christ who is our life is revealed, notice that who is our life? It's because Christ is our life, because he died in our place and we receive my faith, he gives us life and, and he is our life. So many times we make life about, oh, my, my life is about music or my life is about sports or my life is about job. Reality is what our life should be is it should be about Christ. And that influences how we do all those other things. But look what the text says. Well, how do I go about this? He says, well, therefore, consider that is therefore in view of your life's hidden in Christ, in view that you're supposed to focus on him, in view of who you are and your identity, he says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion. This is a negative passion. All these are in a context of sexual immorality. 
evil desire and greed. Notice this, underline this, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. That is, these things, these sins, these, why would we want to do these kind of things? This is this kind of thing that those who don't know Christ, God's wrath is going to be poured out upon them. So why do we practice them? And then he says this, and in them you once walked when you were, you were living in them. That is, that's who you once were. That's who you once walked. We don't do that anymore. Now, here's what we do with them. We consider them dead. In essence, uh, what literally this means is to consider dead means to put to death, to kill. Whereas the old King James used to put it, and as the Puritan writers used to write, it's to mortify it. It's to crush it. It's to smash it in your life. We had an event recently here in the church life, and one of the benefits of being a pastor is that uh, when there are events and they involve food, guess who the food goes to if it's not all eaten? It's, it's us, okay? Grant has to fight it off. I have to fight it off. Jeb has to fight it off. But sometimes we just bring it home. And this particular occasion, there was a cake there. It was made by a lady named Fran Wiggins that goes to our church. And anybody knows Fran Wiggins? She makes some, ugh. They're sinfully good cakes, okay? I'm just going to tell you that. They are amazing. And this one was amazing, okay? This looked so moist in there. I could, I could see in there, and it was covered with icing, just covered all over. And so we just had to bring it home, okay? So my wife brought it home. She was with me, so it's partly her fault. Don't tell her I said that. But uh, she brought it home, and she laid it on the cal- counter there in our kitchen, okay? And there it is in our kitchen, and I, I saw it. It looked good. So I thought, you know, I'm a diabetic, so I'll just take out the, the middle of it. You know, I won't eat the icing, so I'll just eat the middle of it. That was good, but, but why I ate the middle of it? I got some taste of that icing. And so I ate the whole piece. And I walked away. I didn't forget how that tasted either. And I walked back in there, and later I got me some more pieces. You notice I said pieces? Okay. <laughs> I didn't say peace, I said pieces, all right? And, and, and over time, it started dwindling. I think it was the kids. Uh, it started dwindling. And it got down, there were some, some, some pieces left, and there was, there, it was just so gooey of a cake, there was icing all over the bottom where the pieces weren't anymore. And, and I saw it, and I was going for it. And my wife saw it, and she stepped in. And she said, no. And she took the thing, she took it away from me, and she did the, the worst thing I could ever imagine. She took that thing, put it in the sink, put water and soap on it, and killed it. <laughs> and then I had this thought, I bet that still tastes good in that water and soap. <laughs> Here's my point, okay? We sometimes like to go around in our Christian life. The idea is we like to go around and say, you know what? We just, we just try to kind of control the sin. We try to manage it. You know, I can manage it. I can, I can have a little bit here. I'm not, I don't have as much of the cake as that person has. All right? And we try to manage it. But here's the point. You can't do it that way. I'm a diabetic. I can't work it that way. I got to kill it. I got to put it to death. I got, I got to put it out there. You just can't let it linger on the counter, and we can't do that with our sin either. Be done with it. And here's why. Look what the text says. Look back at the text again. And it says, and greed, which mounts to idolatry. 
That is, on the end of all these sexual sins that he's talking about, he finally comes and says it's greed, all right? And greed is when we just, you know, we just kind of kept having more, and it becomes all about us. We're just getting more and more. And he says, this amounts to idolatry. And the reality is this, when sin so overcomes us and we're consumed with it and we make it all about ourselves, it becomes idolatry. And idolatry is anything that takes the place of God. You don't want to be idolaters, do you? Kill it. Just kill it, crush it, and make no room for it. Mortify it. And how do we do that? Well, let's look what the text says. One of the things that we can do, it says in uh, verse 8, it says this, But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice. He gives us some more, some more sins here. Slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Matter of fact, when, when I often do marriage counseling, I can give verses like this right here. I, I can just say, would you, hey, just open up. It might be Galatians. It could be this passage here. And I just say, you read this to me. And, I, and then I'll ask him a question. says, does this describe your marriage? Unless they want to lie to me right there, they, they'd say, yeah. I say, yeah, you've got some things to put off. You've got some things to kill in your life. Because this is not how we should be operating in our marriage and our families. Then look at the, the other part of this, what it says here. It says this in verse, drop down to verse 12. It says, putting on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Does anyone need any of this in their marriage? I mean, look at this text here. Do any, could any of y'all use some of this in your marriage? Could any of your kids use some of this in their, their lives? Yeah. Though I often find I need it more than they do. This is all about family here, folks. This is the day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff right here. And we have to go about this process of putting off and putting on. Remember these two words, putting them all aside and putting on, are, are very illustrative words. The words putting all, them all aside is used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to literally taking clothes off. The, the, the word to, to put on is used of, as, of this idea of kind of sinking into garments. So it's just kind of like the idea of you taking off clothes and putting on clothes. Remember, anyone here for Christmas get new clothes? Come on, join in with me. All right, yes. All right. Uh, does anyone here having a problem getting their new clothes to fit into their closet or their drawers? Anyone here? All right, thank you for being honest. That was a man. A couple men even raised their hands. Thank you. You got a problem. Some things need to be removed. And, but the, the, the objection is often, well, there just may be something in there that I might need later. It might just go with an outfit. One time Elizabeth was cleaning out her closet, and she pulled out this one outfit, and it had these shoulder pads in there. These, these, what are you laughing at? They, they had these shoulder pads that were so big, they, a linebacker could wear them. I'm telling you. Don't go telling her that either, So I know some of you all do that. All right. That's out of date. Now, I didn't tell her that at the moment because I want to thrive in my marriage. Uh, so I put it delicately, all right? But here's my point. 
You've got things that you're wearing in your life today that are stuck in your closets, that are stuck in your drawers. They don't fit with who you are now. They don't fit with your identity in Christ. And you need to start taking them out, putting them off, putting them away, kill it. And then here's the other side of this principle. You need to put something on in their place. You need to put something in their place. The idea here is that we just don't put things, we don't just focus on rejecting things, but we need to replace things. Matter of fact, I want to get some more honest. I want to solicit involvement from you. How many in your parenting, you struggle with saying no all the time? Now, here's what I mean. There's times we need to say no. But have you ever had those times in your life that you tell your child no, and you don't even know what you said no to? Come on. Get honest with me. All right, I'm with you. And the reality is this. We need to tell our kids no at times. But we cannot just tell them no. We have to tell them what they need to do in its place. So too in our Christian life. It's not about just saying no, 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 no. It's about putting on the things, the attitudes, and the actions of Christ as well. Let me illustrate it this way. I have a wonderful front yard. My front yard does well. It's healthy. It's doing good. It's got strong grass in there. My backyard, oh, man, it's, it's embarrassing. Good thing it's in the backyard, okay? But each year I get, these, I get this crabgrass that comes up. And I hate crabgrass, all right? Anyone hate grab, crabgrass in here? Okay, just join my club, all right? I hate it. So I thought, I'm, I'm getting busy. I went to the store, and I went, and I got me some spray, and I was wiping it out, okay? And I went, and I sprayed it, and I killed it. And it was great for a few weeks. Then other weeds grew up in their place. And see, that's what happens. If all we do is we just kill it, all we do is put it off, guess what's going to come in? Some other seed's going to fly in, it's going to burrow down in there, and it's going to grow up. We've got to replace it with the attitudes and the actions of Christ as well. So how do you do this? Well, I've showed you this example before, but I want to show you an example. And I encourage you to actually use it. I've given you a blank. If you go one of the bulletins in the back, uh, there's a card there. And I actually, if you're struggling in an area, actually write it down. I mean, if you want to live out these principles, you've got to take action. And so here's one way that I use it. So let's say, because this is in Colossians 3.13, uh, forgiveness is an issue. All right? I need to stop unforgiveness. Or I need to stop bitterness that I have. And I need to put on forgiveness in its place. So what's the scripture? Well, I go, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. All right? So what's a thought that might accompany that? Well, the thought that you might have or I've had is, I'll show her. I'll get even with her. Oh, yeah, she did me wrong. Yeah, I'll get back with her. I won't have you raise your hands, but I guarantee some of you have thought that. Here's the new thought. I will return good for evil. That's from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. I will return good for evil. My love does not depend on her love. I have promised before God to love her. Remember those vows you made so long ago? That's where it comes to play. This is, this is the real stuff of, of marriage and family, isn't it? It's these principles, these truths right here where we get in the nitty-gritty. You've got to be intentional about putting off and putting on. You've got to dig in God's Word, and you've got to figure out, what does your truth say, Lord, to me in this area? And this leads me to another thing. Look at verse 10. Jump back in there with me, verse 10. 
It says, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practice. The old self is who we were before Christ. And it says, and you have put on the new self. The old, and the old self, we did not have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. All right? We were not indwelt by God's presence through the Holy Spirit. We were left our own flesh, our own selves. But as the new self, as Scripture says, we become new creatures in Christ. That is, we still remember how to sin. We haven't forgot how to do those things. We haven't forgot how to be unforgiving or how to tell lies. We still do that. But now, in Christ, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We're new creatures who's working in us. The Spirit's working in us. Matter of fact, look what the text says. The text says this, having put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That is, we're being renewed, and who's doing the renewing? Here's, let me give you the grammar of this. This, the grammar of this is a present passive participle. What a passive does, it's, it's an implied agent outside of you that's actually doing this work in you. It's not you doing it, but it's an agent outside of you. And who is that agent who's actually in us? It's the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us that. Matter of fact, 2 Corinthians 3.18, look at this, this verse. This is an awesome one right here. It says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same from the glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That is, God is renewing you. If you let Him, He's going to make you more and more like Christ. How do you think Christ would do in marriage? As far as if... He was in that kind of relationship. I mean, how many of you wives would want Christ to lead in your home? How many of you husbands would want your wife to, to model after Christ? You think he would have a thriving family? He would. Here's the good news, all right? You can become more like Christ because the presence of the Holy Spirit is in you. He can renew you, and you can have Christ-like homes. You can have Christ-like marriages if you let Him work in your life. Look at this here a little bit closer because you might ask, well, well how do I do this? How, how do I, I, I let the Holy Spirit thrive and renew me? It's this. First of all, I yield to Him. I submit to Him in obedience. You, this is what you say, I will do it. And then as you do it, you say you're dependent upon Him. In essence, it's this. Instead of living uh, in default mode, and default mode is over here. We know how to sin. We can just, on default, we can just, we'll be back in it, all right? Instead, we're living in dependence mode on the Holy Spirit instead of default mode in our own flesh. Here's how I practice this. I, I use something like this. That's a prayer. So I, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I say, Holy Spirit, control me and fill me today. Cultivate in me a heart. That is, give me a heart that is willing to submit and obey your word. Because sometimes I don't want to. I don't want to obey it. So I ask, Lord, you do that work in my heart. And may I depend on you. And may your fruit grow in me. It's, it's that practical, folks, that we come to him and we submit ourselves to him and we pray in dependence upon him. Now here's the thing. The Holy Spirit does not work alone. He works in tandem with the word of God as well. Look what it says here in the text, verse 16. It says this, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. So we got, we got involved here. We've got some, some positive teaching, some negative teaching. 
That is, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That is, what it literally means is to make your home in you. That's what you want the word of God to do. That is, the, the word of God is so pervasive in your life, it's, it's, it's just at home. It's settled there. And that's what gives you the direction and the thinking about marriage. Matter of fact, we are bombarded with, with, with different ideas and guidance about marriage and family and children and how we should deal with the different cultural issues of our day. And it should be God's Word that's guiding us. It should be God's Word that's guiding our marriages and, and, our, and our families. Matter of fact, a couple decided that uh, they would do something together to strengthen their marriage. So they decided to go duck hunting together. Some of you guys are like, yeah, I'd like that. So this, this couple decided they wanted to go duck hunting together, and they, they heard of other people going duck hunting with dogs. So they figured, hey, they need to buy a good hunting dog, and they got a dog, and they did. And they got all of their equipment and their dog, and they, they took off to go hunting all for the day. And then they tried to get some ducks. But as they came to the end of the day, they, they hadn't got one duck and so, so the husband looked at his wife and he said, very frustratedly, Honey, we've got to be doing something wrong here. We haven't caught a duck yet. Not one. And then the wife just kind of looked at him and she started thinking. She says, Well, maybe if we started throwing the ducks a little bit higher up in the air, we'd, we'd catch one. He said, Matt, where in the world are you going with this? I'm going with this. Some of you and I, we seek to go hunting for ducks and we shoot, try to shoot ducks down with the wrong weapons. You don't shoot dog down, uh, down ducks by throwing dogs up in the air. You shoot ducks down by, by shooting guns at them. And the reality is this. When we approach marriage, we try to all kinds of other weapons that we want to throw up in the air to kind of deal with the problems that are going on in our lives. We, deal, we, we throw up the advice that we get from radio shows, or we throw up the advice that we get from all those different radio or TV shows. And we're throwing those all up in the air. And guess what? Those are not meant to work. Those don't help a marriage. The reality is the weapon that we need to use is the heavenly weapon that God has given us, that He has brought down to us. And that is the weapon of His Word. And that's the thing that we ought to be shooting to deal with the problems and the things in our life. Is if we want to thrive in our family and in our marriages, we've got to be using God's Word to give us direction. We need God's Word to say, hey, here's how a marriage ought to operate. We need God's Word. This is how you work with your children. And here's how you deal with things in the family. You need God's Word as well as the culture comes in. It tells you this is what marriage is. That marriage can be between a, a man and a man or a woman and a woman. We need God's Word to speak into our lives and say, no, this is what's going to steady your course. Is it's what God's truth is. And those are the weapons that we fight with in our culture today. We've got to let the Word of God dwell richly within us. And then this. Notice too. We're not alone in this. It says in verse 16. Notice, jump back in there with me again. It says this. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching. Again, there's positive instruction and admonishing. And who's doing this? Who are you doing this with? One another. Not only has He left us and given us His Holy Spirit, but He's given us each other. And the reality is this. If you want to have a thriving family, you can't go through this life all on your own. You can't do it that way. Matter of fact, I, uh, one of my small groups that I was leading some time back, uh, it, was, it was a, a great 
several mature believers in there. And uh, so we were trying to decide, you know, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to study for content this period of our small group we were going through? And I, I thought we'd do a lot of th- other things, but they said, no, we, we want to talk about marriage. And bro, no, we really want to talk about parenting. And so I said, okay, we'll do that. And as we started to get into this content, as I started to look around at some of these very sharp individuals and mature people in their, in their, their walk with Christ, what did I notice? They had struggles too. They had struggles in their parenting. They needed help. And we were together in order to encourage each other in this. And realize, you know what, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not the only one that struggles with trying to have a good management anger when I'm dealing with my kids. And we encourage and we build each other up on that. And the reality is this. If we want to have a thriving family, if we want to have thriving marriages, you need fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just to get together, drink coffee, eat donuts, or whatever else you're eating at your meal, but people who can take God's word and they can come along and they can say, here's what God's truth has helped me. Or they can say, you know, I think you're a little off track. Here's what God's word says. We need, we need people in our lives who will pray prayers like in Colossians chapter 1, verses uh, 19, or I'm sorry, 12, if you should put it up here like this. It says this. It's a prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Colossae. It was this. He said, God, I ask you to fulfill whomever it is with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may live worthy of you, Lord, and please you in all respects, bearing fruit in every good deed, growing in the knowledge of you. God, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might. I mean, who not, does not want someone to pray for them in this way? And that's where we need to do life together, where it's a place where we're praying prayers like this to help us endure through our marriages and our families and help us thrive in a culture that is seeking to combat us and tear us down. Those are the essentials. Matter of fact, I would encourage you to do this. In the back as you go out on these tables here, we have a fuller uh, sermon outline. What I would encourage you, they have all these essentials listed on there, and then I've put just different practical ways that you can apply this to, to your life. And here's what I would encourage you to do over the next few weeks. Just make this a regular part of your life. It's pray through this guide. That you would work through this. You would find scriptures to read. Matter of fact, I would encourage you over the next few weeks that you might read through Galatians 5, that you might read through all of, of Colossians, and you might especially read through also Ephesians 4 through 6 as well. And apply these essentials to your life. There's a man named Frederick Hanley Page. He was a pioneer in aviation. And he was uh, flying uh, in the Middle East one day. And matter of fact, he was getting ready to uh, go and fly over Arabia, or Saudi Arabia. And unbeknownst to him, a huge rat had snuck into his plane, and he was going to be flying solo. But he didn't know it. And evidently, this rat had been attracted to the food that had been stored for this, this journey, for this trip that he was going to fly. Well, as he was flying along, as he got up in the air, he started hearing some rustling in his plane. And after he listened for a little while, he began to know, oh, no, I've got a rodent. i got a rodent. And what he began to worry about is there was just different wires that, that controlled the different mechanics and was worried that he was in these things. And it certainly sounded like he was in there rustling and he was beginning to gnaw at different wires. And he began to worry, what, what wire might he, he, he bite into? He began to worry that if he gnaws into one of these wires, he could send my plane to crashing. So what is he to do? He's flying and there's no one else there with him. 
And then he did an amazing thing. He remembered what he had learned in class many years before. He learned this. He learned that rats cannot live at high altitudes. In fact, the higher that you take them, they become unable to breathe at such a high altitude. And so what he began to do is, is not having that knowledge, that he began to apply that knowledge, and he began to fly up higher and higher and higher in altitude. He kept hearing the gnawing on the wires and things, and then finally he got to a point where the gnawing stopped. And remember when he went back, he, when he got to his destination, he, he landed, and when he looked around, he looked behind uh, the, the cockpit, and sure enough, he found a rat that was died there. My point is this. In our lives, there are all kinds of rats that are trying to make our way into our marriages and into our families, and they're trying to get in there and they're trying to gnaw on, on crucial wires to our marriages and families. They're trying to gnaw with things of sin. They're trying to get in there and they're trying to, to, to gnaw in such ways that immorality comes into our marriages and families. They're trying to gnaw in such a way that it, it gets us to, to respond to our spouse in ways that are, are not proper way to communicate towards each other. He's trying to get gnaw in there through things like different avenues of secularism or, or ways of materialism and the, those rats of sin get in there and they gnaw away. What are we to do? What we're to do is we're supposed to fly higher with Christ. That is, what we're to do in order to fly higher, we're to make Christ the focus of our purpose in life and our direction in life. We're we're, we're supposed to fly higher as we we see those sins, we we put them to death. We're supposed to fly higher and walk closer with Christ as as we put off the things of sin, and we put on the things and the attitudes and actions of Christ. We're, we're supposed to fly higher with Christ as we, as we dwell in upon His Word. We're supposed to keep flying even higher with Christ as we, we live in dependence upon His Holy Spirit, and we operate in dependence mode, not default mode. And we're supposed to fly higher with Christ as we, as we operate in community with other believers to encourage us and build us up in our marriages and our families, our parenting. And as we do that, the gnawing of the rats of sin will begin to die and push away. And you and your family will begin to thrive for Christ in a sinful culture. My exhortation to you is that you will begin to apply these essentials to your life for the glory of God. And when you glorify God, you will benefit from His glory. Dear God, we come and we praise you. We thank you, Lord, for your word that teaches us these things, that speaks this truth in our lives, that you don't leave us here alone. You don't expect us to live the Christian life in our own strength, trying to figure out our way. But Lord, you give us guidance. You give us truth. You give us your very self through the presence of your Holy Spirit. You give us fellow believers. And Lord, my prayer is for myself and for all those that are here, for moms and dads, for husbands and wives, for grandparents, for children of all ages, Lord, may as we go through this series over the next few weeks, may we, as we go, may we first of all be centered on you, Christ, and applying these essentials to our lives so that we might live for your glory and we might represent you well as we take this family road trip together. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.